We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Is this thing on? Yesterday's price is not today's price. Welcome back to the Run the Numbers podcast. I'm CJ Gustafson. This is apparently the number three business management show in Lebanon. And I am here with Curtis Hani, the Draymond Green of CFOs. <laughs> That's right. Uh, thanks. Thanks for having me on. And, and and honestly, like I had a dream board, you know, from when I was 16 years old. And on that dream board was number three podcast in Lebanon. So, man, <laughs> things really coming true here. I'm glad we can make your wish come true, Curtis. That's pretty neat. I got to, before we jump in here, how did you, in, in your newsletter today, you were connecting Draymond Green to to the finance department. How did you do that? The funny thing is, is I wrote that like two weeks ago, but I didn't have an intro story. And so I, last night I was like realizing that crap, I got to come up with something to draw a connection here. And as I'm doing it, I'm not wanting to do a lot of writing. You know, you know how it is. You you like you know you need to write, but then it's like when you need to write is when you hate writing half the time. And so I'm distracting myself by scrolling Twitter and I see it pop across that Draymond was um suspended. <laughs> and so I tweeted out rip Draymond which went it was just funny. It's like the most liked like tweet I've had in, you know, months. You know, got like 1500 likes on it and it was just going crazy. So I was just Again, for about an hour last night when I was supposed to be writing, I'm sitting there chattering back and forth with people about this issue. And then it just popped in my head. I was just like, hey, you know what? This is like sports. They These come down to one moment. And I'm like, dude, Draymond is going to be remembered for all of his antics over winning all of his championships over his MV, like defensive player of the year, like all this stuff. He's going to remember for being the doofus that got kicked out of the league or because of all of his cheap shots. And it's just like, I don't know, it, it just fell into place. It was a beautiful thing. I wish, I wish that it could be like that every week. Well, as a writer, I, it was one of those analogies that you made where I was like, oh yeah, but I was like secretly jealous. I was like, damn, that was a good one. Like, I wish I came up with that one. But I thought it was true that a lot of businesses can be remembered for a singular decision or stupid thing that they did. So it was a good connection. Yeah. Well, I, I was pretty proud of it last night, so I'm glad someone else enjoyed it. <laughs> All right. So we're back with another mailbag. First question we got here. Robert Tierlay asks, what are the most common 3 a.m. pain points that are keeping CEOs up at night that CFOs can help with right now? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I would be curious to, to find some of our good CEO buddies and see what they thought about this question, because I think I think they're going to have a really good answer to that. But from my perspective, when I've been in these situations where I've actually taken phone calls from the CEO and they're freaking out at 1130 at night and, you know, we spend an hour on the call, you know, trying to fix through something, it typically comes back to a few different things. One has been banking relationships and banking uh, covenants and that sort of deal, right? Because if something doesn't go well. And now you may be out of covenant. You're trying to figure something out. And the other one is cash, always something cash related, right? Because ultimately that's what runs the business is the cash in the business. And then the third one that I've thought about uh, is kind of demand forecasting or like contingency planning stuff. So something has gone wrong where you're having this and you know maybe you didn't get a contract you thought, maybe you got a contract, but it's not going as well as you thought it would, you know? So from, from my perspective, those three things are really key of having those good banking relationships where you're in front of those that also ties into forecasting kind of contingency planning stuff. Um, and then cash flow, cash flow analysis and trying to figure those pain points out. Because I think when you can figure out the cash flow piece 
The worst decisions that businesses make typically are done when they're made quickly without much thought. And so when you start to understand, oh, we do have cash, right? We're not having to make some snap decision that's, you know, last minute that you just have no choice. When you start to have a better understanding of where your cash is, it can sometimes help you be able to slow down in those times. And so those are kind of the three things that popped into my head. I'm sure there's many, many more, but from my experience, that's what I've seen. The cash piece is so true because when you understand your cash, I feel like you have a better grip on your company's velocity. It's like you can slow it down or speed it up as much as you want. But when you get into that situation where you don't fully understand your cash position, it kind of feels like the rails are falling off and you don't know, should I do this or should I do that? And you make a reactionary decision that can have a longer term impact on the business. 40, I think it was 48%. Uh, I maybe even referenced this last time we chatted of business owners say they don't understand their financials. Well, when you don't have an understanding of your financials and specifically cash, there's anxiety that comes with that. That doesn't go away. It's just this low grade, like just always there anxiety. Always just burning. It's, yeah. it's just like a low grade heartburn that you always have. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. Somewhere, somewhere in Europe, there's been like this this hole that is just burning for the last 30 years. It's like that hole that's burning. It's because someone lit something on fire and there's like gas beneath it and they can't get it out. That is what it feels like. You just feel like you have this heat underneath your feet all the time and you're checking the rubber on your shoes to make sure it's not melted, you know? Well, speaking of feeling the heat, I was trying to come up with tactical answers to this question, but I kept coming back to that. I think what keeps a lot of CEOs up at night are the long-term decisions that they've made that they don't have an answer on today. And what I mean by that is the CEO is always trying to predict like where are we going to be in 18 months? And a lot of that is around hiring. It's around making the right partnerships and about investing money to build a new product. And the most difficult part about that is you're putting something in motion that there's no feedback mechanism that you're going to receive to tell you you made the right decision for a long time. And to me, that's like a low-grade burn that you have that keeps you up at night like, did I make the right decision for the long term? Because it, every CEO says it's the loneliest position because you don't have someone at your level that you can just turn to and, and kind of be truly emotionally honest with, I think. And I think even as a CFO, I feel this a bit sometimes that you're making decisions for the business where, you know, when you're younger in your career, you're banging out a spreadsheet and making a model and boom, like you can deliver that that day. But now as a CFO, you're making decisions that are put in motion that you're not going to know if you made the right or wrong call. And no one's going to say good or bad job until like, you know, those chickens hatch, which could be years in the future. How do you make them feel less anxious about those decisions? Obviously forecasting and that stuff is an easy answer, but what's the other answer to that question? I think you just have to have accurate information and digest it to know where the company is currently at. Because if you have that muscle that it's just part of you, you're going to inherently make better decisions because you completely understand where the business is going. And then I read this book, Mentality, Kobe Bryant, and there was this line in it and it was a big shot is just another shot. And I'm linking back to your dream on green basketball example, but I think uh, the best CEOs know that a big decision is just another decision. Like their job is to make decisions and to be able to take the shot and feel comfortable with it and move on to the next one. What's hard is if you get stuck in this analysis paralysis and then you change kind of your shot motion or your decision-making framework, that's where you can get tripped up. It's a tough thing because they're, it's also in those moments of high pressure, things slow down and you may need to, you may need to make decisions a little bit differently too. And so that skill of knowing when is the right time to do that versus when is the right time to just move forward. Yeah. So you don't get that analysis paralysis is something that I think has got to be the toughest job of a CEO. And I do think that CEOs are paid for their decision making. Like people always release those silly reports that are like the average CEO is paid like 121 times more than the average employee at the company. It's like, well, they're making decisions that have more than 121 X impact on where the company is going, right, wrong, or indifferent. Like they could totally crater the company and destroy billions of dollars of, of shareholder value. Yeah. So I, I would say just as like the CFO, just as I think about it from my perspective, there's, there's not a hard and fast answer outside of just the typical CFO stuff that you would do. But 
it does really come to those soft skills. And you have to be someone that in those times, they can come to you and get a counterbalance to what they their default tends to be. So if they're the real emotional one, if they're the one that's like, you know, that's kind of shooting by the hip, that you as the CFO need to be the one to like bring calm to that situation. That was one of the situations that I was in is the guy would, he would, he would get really, he, he just was, would get really anxious about stuff. And I had to be the one calming him down, but I could see if I were with a different, different CEO that was already calm and had no urgency and I'm not bringing that urgency that needs it, then, then that is going to be a bad team. And so I think, I think as the C CFO, it's about filling in the gap that you see with the CEO, because when you're able to do that, and when you are able to have those really tight conversations with them, really hard conversations, that helps them with those pain points because it gives them confidence that they're not in that all alone situation, like you said. I like the counterbalance. The, the word that I took away from that is counterbalance because it's so true. It's like you don't want two hotheads, two people that get riled up. You need somebody who it's like you can't both be angry at the same time. It's like in a relationship, like only one person can be angry at a time. <laughs> <laughs> at least that's what I joke with my wife. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The next question that we got here, Corey Taft asks, what does scaling the finance department look like for startup companies? More specifically, how many FP&A or finance folks per total headcount or ARR? On the tech stack, when should you implement an FP&A tool and what level of spend makes sense given the size and growth projection of the firm? This is a meaty one, so let's, let's slice this one up. So I'm curious to get your take, Curtis, on when you're working with clients that are scaling their companies, like how many people usually get staffed to a company that, you know, has $10 million in revenue versus 20 versus 30? Like, are there any hard and fast rules of thumb? Like, how do you resource allocate there? I don't think I have a great answer here because in the businesses I've been in, the businesses I work with, there's a vast difference between the industries, the people that in the industries that I'm working in, so that makes it hard to give a, a rule. What I like to say from a building a, a department standpoint is you want, so you have like staff accountants, bookkeepers, like kind of these lower levels, and you'll maybe have a senior, then accounting manager, then controller, then CFO. I always say, go after that senior accountant person. You need someone who can think right? You don't want someone, you just don't want the transaction level. And then I say, fill that gap with the fractional CFO until you need to hire for this controller or for this accounting manager um, type person. And so I then, you then fill out the lower level of all the data people because you want to keep your, you want to keep the people thinking, actually thinking, not in the data entry. And I think that's where a lot of businesses get off is they, they just hire these high end people and then they expect them to do all the other stuff where they're not getting to really flex and use the skills that they have. And so I like to think you kind of have one medium level and then you kind of build underneath them until you have the capacity for those higher level. And so like the FP&A function that's going to be so different from one industry to another because there's the way you run the business and the numbers that you need to run that business and the complexity of those numbers is really going to be significantly different um, in different industries. I bet it's a little bit more solid kind of in the software like startup world there, you know, you're going to have a little bit more consistency in how you build. So I'm kind of interested, you know, what your, what your thinking is on that piece. I generally think like three people in the finance and accounting department per 100 employees. And that's not a hard and fast number, but I, I seem to have experienced that this tends to work and it you don't go either skeleton bones crew and you don't also end up like going completely overboard and spending a ton in GNA and making that line look huge. So about three per 100. 
and then you can scale that up over time. And it shouldn't actually be like a linear relationship where you just keep adding people. That That's where companies get carried away and you can see like, oh, now we have an accounts payable department of 17 people. It's like, well, do you really need that many like past 100 million? Like there should be efficiencies there. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, and that's what when you talk about when you talk about the scaling that admin expense is a step up and it just steps, right? And so you have to think, what are your trigger points to need to hire that next person? And the headcount is a good number, just as like kind of a rule of thumb, just to real quickly be able to look. But I more look at what are those people doing? The place where a lot of people get screwed up is, is on the tech side. They find a piece of tech that they like, so they look for a problem that that solves for them versus surfacing the problem or surfacing the solution that they need and then going and trying to find the tech for that. It's it's like you really like the nail, so you're walking around with a hammer just trying to find something. I yes, that's what, yeah, exactly. I've been there before too. And then uh, you end up with like this Ferrari, but it's like running on like 89 gas and it doesn't really work because it, because it was a bad match. Yeah, and the other part of that is once you implement, people are very slow to change. So if you don't need that Ferrari that day, it's likely what I've seen, I've actually seen this happen is they'd say, well, it, this system doesn't do it. So we have to go look for another solution. So they go look for the other solution when in reality, the Ferrari they had could do that, but they were so in their groove of what they thought it did that they never actually did that. And so I think you have to be, you have to have the right sized solution for that business. And it's so easy to be sold to. And what I often see is everyone is busy. And so you, you will kind of do the, when you're implementing and bringing in one of those tools, you'll kind of do the bare minimum to say, oh yeah, this works. But then when you go to implement it, it's completely different than what you expected. And I think I've kind of got to the point where I'm way more hesitant to pull the trigger on new tech and, and understanding that if we're going to get to that point of needing to implement it, it's going to mean overtime hours. It's going to mean all this stuff because it's just something that if you're going to do the do, due diligence, right, you can't do the due diligence in your normal course of the day of work, you know? And a lot of people mess up the budgeting that goes into getting a new system. Like if you buy a NetSuite, it could fully cost 1.5x the first year cost of NetSuite just to implement it. And so you forget about this whole professional service fee that goes along with it. It can be shocking sometimes. And uh, and I, I think, I don't know if you ever, every situation where I've done those, people have not used it to its fullest extent either. And so you end up spending a lot of money for very limited support um, because your people are hesitant to ask questions. Hey, thanks for listening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. I want to go back to something you said, Curtis, about hiring like the ambitious mid-level leader instead of like the really expensive, like tenured person when you're scaling. I think that is so crucial. And I have this analogy that I say, are you hiring an iPad leader or, or a laptop leader? And what I mean by that is are you hiring someone who's actually going to get in the spreadsheet and put their fingers in the keyboard or someone who's just expecting to get something sent to them and they can open it on their iPad and, and check if it's right or wrong. Cause I've seen a lot of companies go and hire that iPad leader and then there's nobody to do the work. And now you're paying X hundreds of thousands of dollars for this really high priced person that was at brand name X, Y, Z. And now there's nobody to actually do the work to send to them. And then you just end up building this fiefdom under them. Yeah, that's where 100% get into department building and it's it can be crazy. But the other thing is, you think about it, if you get that top leader first, you're really limited by their knowledge and their experience. Whereas if you have the mid-level people, you can hire them coaches or fractional executives or other people to come in and do projects that can teach into that person. And you're really building that person up to kind of climb to those higher heights, you know, if they're the right person. And if they're not, then you can go figure that piece out. But I, I think enough business, and obviously this is self-serving for me, right? Cause I'm serving, I'm doing being a fractional CFO now, but, but I, I just think like, and, and maybe this isn't right, but I, you know, I'm probably not going to be on clients for five years 
because they're probably going to, they probably benefit from changing who they're working with. At they're not changing, points. they're graduating, right? They're, they're, you set them up to grow enough to have their own department. The goal is I set them up enough that they hire that person internal. But I'm even saying even before they get to that point, even going to a different fractional executive or either going to a different coach, because that different perspective is going to be more valuable potentially than staying with the same thing. Wait, does that happen in the fractional world that the people get hired in-house? Like, is that is that a normal thing to do? Or do, or do you look at that like, shit, they just took one of my best employees that makes the company money? Yeah, I think, I think it's expected a lot of times that it can happen. Um, now, those are typically when that happens is when the um, engagement is like more they're in office, you know, it's more of like a legacy type engagement. They're like a badge type That They're like a, yeah, they're there one to two days a week. And then that company gets to the point where they're big enough and they're like, well, why would I hire anyone else? So they want to bring that person in. And what's the inside baseball? Are they going to hit you back with a little, like a bag full of money under the table, like a finder's fee or how's it work? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think when, when I talk to people, I tell them, the goal is, is that we grow your business to the point where you need to hire someone. And I'm not here with my business, but I would love to be in the point of like being able to help place people into those, right? Because if you're placing them, then you know that like they're in some sense, you're outsourcing your skill level to other places and you're, you're, you're dropping it all over the place. That helps in the long term. I think you're seeding the market too with like goodwill and for business to come back to you. It reminds me that this happens actually on the inside sales side when you're like building out a company and maybe you have a product line that you're testing. You can hire a firm that'll have like a bullpen of resources. And then if the person is really good, you just pay them like a flat $10,000, $15,000 fee to buy that person. If they, if they agree that they want to become a full-time employee and it's kind of known that they'll just go through the system and that's a good way to find a, a long-term job. I don't think it's like super common, but it absolutely does happen. So Sean Quinton asks, how do you get teams to buy in on metric definitions when the calculations are complex or showcase poor performance? So I'll, I'll go first on this one because I actually recently just went through it. So I was on a call with Rezek Jallo and he is the CFO of Flowcast, a great accounting tool to close the books. And he was saying, Take away all ambiguity by automating it and making it so everybody receives the report at whether it's close of business or end of month or end of quarter. So it's being calculated by a system and not being done by a person because that's where you can get into like, oh, I'm going to change the way that this metric is calculated now on net dollar retention to include this cohort or only go back this back, this far back to make the metric look better. And then he also said every board deck uh, and Sonoe Torero of Envoy told me this. Every board deck, you should have a list of the definitions and the calculations in the back. So you should never send a deck to somebody with a metric without it explained. And you see public companies do this where they'll have an earnings release. And then at the bottom, they'll say, and by ARR, we define that as this. By net retention, we define it as this. And it does actually vary depending on your business model and who you're selling to. Like uh, one that I just realized is, actually a point of contention amongst a lot of companies is the definition of what a, a customer is. Like, I thought that would be the most simple thing in the world. Like they, they pay us money. That's a customer. But no, like some companies are like Zoom will say they're considered a customer if our field sales team has engaged with them, which means like you didn't self-serve and just buy it on a credit card by yourself. So I guess I'm not a customer, whatever. And like Asana will say, you're a customer if you spend more than $5,000 in annual recurring revenue with us. It's like, okay, Twilio is like, if you spend more than $5 per month, with us. And then you start to get into these nuances that you say, this is why it's so important to put the definitions next to every metric. So people don't create a story that's not there. Yeah. I've, I've started doing that, uh, probably four or five years ago where the reports that I'm generating, especially when you've created semi custom metrics of having that calculation, because we kept having to answer the same questions over and over again. The other thing I thought about when, when I was thinking about this is a lot of the issue that you, that I've seen when it comes to buy-in on metrics is because people weren't a part They're They're being held accountable to that metric, but they weren't a part of that, the generation or the creation of that metric. And you do have to be careful with that because you don't want them, you know, gaming the system. 
And so there may be metrics that you say, this is what we're going to use, but what do you feel like is a reasonable goal? And you guys come to an agreement of what is reasonable in that situation. So then you're passing down the metric because you feel like this is the most accurate way to get to what you want to get to. But then they're the one that is saying, this is what I think I can do. I love that. Then they're solving for the goal. So it's like, even if you don't agree with the measuring stick, it's like, all right, we'll define the game we're playing against it. So that's one of the things that that I've thought about because it is really important. If you don't have buy-in, then it's you're you're pretty much it's it's worthless, you know. And dude, when whenever you're in a meeting and people are arguing over the definition of something, like you've already lost them. Like consider whatever you were discussing, like con- like a total mood point. We I dealt with this with someone uh, with one of my clients where they were calculating profit on gross revenue. But they then got contracts that had a lot of subs, right? And so that's dry, that's significantly changing your revenue. So then the question is, do we calculate profits on gross or on net revenue? And now you're having to have a conversation every time we're talking about their financial statement. Well, profit is this, but under the old scenario, this is what... It, and so you're trying to, you're, you're having to try and merge and... You get so two profits. Becomes, yeah. <laughs> it becomes really messy really quick. And so having those definitions on there helps people get more comfortable with it more quickly, I think. What did you decide on? Because I know gross and net revenue is something that I've discussed too. Well, what's the best way to to define it? Especially if it's a marketplace model, it could be really difficult. Like people calling their GMV revenue that always grinds my gears. And this is this is actually I don't know we've we're we're calculating it off of net revenue, but it's because ninety to ninety five percent of the chargebacks of are like their subcontractors that are just getting billed straight across. So there's no it's literally like a processing fee essentially. Like it's literally just it's just a it's just a flow through. But there are those ones that we do mark up, and when you mark them up, then it can like. If you if you think about it and you mark it up, even if you just pass it through, your your profit is a hundred percent, which doesn't make any sense, right? If you have no other work on that particular deal, but so while it can throw off individual projects or individual, I look at using the net revenue number to get to the profit as a way to really highly reward them for seeking out that additional profit on a sub. And because they're basically getting free dollars if you if you want to oversimplify it. So that's kind of where we landed. Um, but it can vary different, you know, quite differently uh, depending on the type of business. I and, think you and- did it the most honest way. And I also always, my, my, my simple brain is like, well, what would I be valued or purchased based on? No one's going to buy me based on the gross number. They're going to buy me on the net number. So like, let's cut to the chase and just be honest with ourselves. Yeah, that's true too. Think, yeah, thinking about it from the buying perspective, yeah, it's it's one hundred percent. It's also like, what are you setting your goals against? Yeah, because incentives drive everything. Like you, you may set it up to be based on gross, and then you're getting a ton of stuff flowing over the top line, but none of it contributes to the bottom line. When you're, this is a service business that you're billing based off of your people. Well, we really want to know that net because that's telling us how efficient our people are being. And so that's where we, that's where we fell. And so I think, yeah, that we set the goal based off of our internal billings, not based off of the subs. And so when you kind of bring all that together, that's where we decided to go with the net revenue. All right. We got, we got a celebrity question here, Curtis. This is, this is exciting. So our internet friend only CFO asks, What's the number one thing you attribute your career success to? That's that was a good one. I thought about I actually thought about this one and I I was struggling with an answer for this. S- say your wife. Just say your wife. But after that, what was the next one? Uh, after the wife. Uh for me uh it was being infinitely curious on like problem solving. And so I go back to early in my career I was at if you've seen uh, the loves travel stops all around. Like I worked for, I worked for loves and I was in one of their, in one of their groups. Uh, and it was a pretty small group. And so we were, 
you know, had a, had quite a few different problems that we had to deal with. But one of them was a guy in the business had created uh, a bunch of Excel macros that he was using to run different reports. And no one in the business, I say no one in the business, I'm sure there's someone in IT, someone somewhere that knew, but no one within our group knew how to solve for those and knew how to fix them when they broke and all that stuff. So I just said, you know what, I'm going to figure this out. So I learned it all on my own and learning it meant that I got to go present to the ownership. I got to then eventually take over some profit sharing agreements and some different things because I was the only one who could actually translate what was going on in this situation. And it wasn't the sexy thing to do. It was just the thing because I was curious to learn. And so I think I've taken that kind of all across my experience and just being the one that wants to dive in and, and learn something new, I think has, has really served me well throughout. Mine's a derivative of that. I think I've always had a good sense of being able to identify what room or what meeting big decisions are being made in and then being willing to do anything to get into that room. So like I'll staple the papers, I'll, I'll take notes for you, I'll, I'll sweep the floors and water the plants, I don't care, but I want to find a way to get into that room. Because like you said, if you're where the decisions are being made, you can eventually get an assignment that comes out of that. And then you take that assignment, you kick ass, you bring it back to them, you get invited to that next meeting. And so for me, in my head, I played this game of like, how can I increase the number of important meetings I get invited to? And I'll do anything to get into them. Like maybe it's like they need somebody to go do a market analysis on something that we've never even looked at before. Like I'll do it. Or they need someone to go through 110K filings and pull out like the risk factors. Like I'll do it, even though I'm not that interested in it. Because I always think about what's the next thing that I can set you up for. And eventually your calendar goes from like one important meeting a month to two a month to one every week to then you're meeting with the CEO pretty frequently. And so it's like, how can I get that FaceTime with the people who are making the decisions and, and identifying where the moment is that the decisions are being made? That's that's a really good one because for for me, that, that wasn't as, as applicable because I went the small business route. And so I was the one that from day one in, in my situations after kind of working in a couple of big businesses, I was in the room with a CEO every time because I was the only one. And so so my situation was a little bit weird, but kind of iterating off of that, he had another question of what's one thing you wish you did differently. That is what you mentioned right there of doing whatever you could to get in that room is doing a very good job of capitalizing on your opportunities. And that was something that I didn't feel like I did a great job. I actually had this conversation with someone earlier this week of while I was at Love's, I was getting the opportunity to do these presentations. I was in on these different agreements and uh, really for where I was in my career, I had a lot of responsibility. I was some of the higher ups. There was a, um, I'm a huge Oklahoma state. I'm an Oklahoma state alum, bas huge basketball fan. And we were in the NCAA tournament when I first started at, at the company and I got invited to go with three other people to lunch to watch the game that was at lunch. And I got to stay for the whole two hours of that game when normally like all of my other coworkers, they had to get back to work. They didn't get to watch it because they were worried about what their bosses, but I was with the bosses watching the game. <laughs> can't get, I love that when you're like, I can't get in trouble. I'm with, I'm with them right now. So I rubbed it in the people's face, but then I look back and I haven't had contact with, uh, there were actually four others. I haven't had, I've only had contact with one of those four since I left. And so it was, I had opportunity to build a relationship and I didn't take advantage of those opportunities. Like I was in that room with them and had that opportunity and I didn't take advantage of those. And I just look back and honestly, it's not so much of like, oh, what could have happened in my career? as much as those are really smart people that like the same things that I like. And those would have been good friendships to have, even though they were older, even though they were further along, I didn't do a good job of seeking out my tribe in those situations and really trying to, to take advantage of being in the room, like you mentioned there. So, so actually that kind of plays off of yours, but that, that was actually what I thought about is, so it's kind of interesting that was your strength, but that was like, I feel like my weakness, you know? I think my weakness 
has been when I recognize that I, I want to make a change. I like obsess over getting it done until I finally do it. Like I, I have very little ability to like just chill for six months or like just go with the flow. Like I'm very bad at going with the flow. Like once I set my mind to like, I need to change this to that, or I want to go to this company versus that one. Like it's like time's up. Like I've made the decision and it's time to go. And I'm super impatient about that stuff where I think at some points in my career, I probably could have stayed for a little longer. And I don't have like long jumps. Like maybe I had just under two years at one place, which is still like, that's probably the average in the tech community now and everywhere else is like three years that I've been. But I don't know. I, I do think that I'm, I'm very on and off switch and kind of like binary, like I'm in or I'm out, which is also a good thing because I'm going to put my heart and soul into it while I'm there. But I've, I've always been a bit jealous of people who can just kind of like chill out for a while. I'm like, oh, we'll see how this plays out. Like, I've never been like, I'm going to see how this plays out. I'm like, no, I'm moving now. I'm going to go and, and make a decision. So for better or for worse, it's a quality I have. That's that's good. And that's like said, that's the strength too. But then that's the the weakness comes into play when you're not patient enough in situations where that patience could be advantageous. I've had so many people say that. Like, can't you just be patient? Can't you just be patient? I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm going 100 miles per hour right now. And uh yeah. So sometimes you can take the back roads. That's what I got to tell myself. High motor with boxing, right? You, you had to, you had to have that high motor. You can't turn that high motor off. You're just a well-oiled machine over there. Next one we got here. Rebecca Orvis asks, it would be great to hear your thoughts on CFO priorities. What are the top five things CFOs are focusing on at the moment? I can give you one or two and maybe you can round out the five here. So Number one for me, I think a lot of businesses are saying, we're going to hire next year. Contrary to popular belief, a lot of companies are still hiring, but you need to make every single hire count, okay? No more of these fluff hires of, I think the Spotify CEO, Daniel, called it like no more work around the work. So there's no more like fluff resources that are going to be there. And also to like think super carefully around like, is this the person not just for this year, but for the next two or three years? Something else that I think a lot of CFOs are getting their heads around are the banking relationships. And you said it at the beginning of the podcast, like making sure you're in bed with the right partners there, because when you want to spend your cash on things like hiring, you want to know that it's safe. Um, and also just the economy is like kind of wacky right now. I think a lot of people are just like putting their arms out. Like, can I, can I feel the room around me? And like, where's the cash? hundred percent. I, the, one of the ones I thought of was, was kind of the debt, um, the debt focus. So I think that flows in really well with the bank bank relationships is it's um, I think when times are good, it can be easy to get distracted by everything that's going on in the business and you lose sight of some of those fundamentals that you have. So it's contract management, debt focus. Um, those are absolutely two big things. And then you kind of hinted there of the cash, you know, the cash flow and the cash needs of the business. And I think those kind of all flow in together, um, but they are all a little bit distinct. And so um, I think when it is a weird time, I think we kind of talked about this last time too, in that there are so many mixed signals and I think more mixed signals than there usually are. When those signals are mixed, uh, it's about doing all the things in preparation that will allow you to act quickly if you need to. So it's really trying to make sure that your foundation is solid so that when something happens, you're able to, you know, if you, if you got, if you're standing on rotted wood and you try and jump off rotted wood, like foot may go through and you may go nowhere. But if you got a, if you got a firm foundation with that, you put that concrete foundation there, then you're going to be jumping off something hard. So that's good. My vertical isn't that good. Like you can maybe swipe a credit card under it. Like if you're lucky, <laughs> but, but I get it. I get the analogy. Yeah. I, well, I, yeah, I'm not one to be speaking of verticals either. So that's, can you dunk? No, heck no. I'm, All right. you know, I'm like, what, how tall are you? You're, are you six foot? Or are you? I'm five, eight and three quarters on a good okay. day. Friend. All right. I couldn't, yeah, I'm like, I'm like five, nine, maybe five, 10. And, and I'm a little bit bitter about it. I'm just going to be honest here. Um, my dad is six, two. Dude, you got ripped off. I had some high hopes for myself and then, um, it just didn't happen. So I just want to feel like wants the rush of dunking on a 10 foot hoop. Just I, I imagine <laughs> it feels incredible. <laughs> Daydream about it. All right. Row, a company we are both intimately familiar with and has a great 
product for managing your payments. They said, what, if anything, do you think will change about the CFO role five to 10 years from now? That's a very loaded question. I think we're going to be replaced by robots, first of all. None of us will be here. We'll just be writing chat GPT prompts, right? That's what that's what's going to happen. Well, I think you've already seen this shift, uh, but I think the CFO is going to be less. You, you Like CFO used to be, you had to come up the CPA, you had to come up these very specific paths and the CFO route has opened up. And so I, I see that opening up even more because as you have all of these tools, all of these automations, AI. I think the CFO role will see less changes than the rest of the accounting department, but I think there are still built be significant changes. CFO Drive did this study, and I think like the number of CFOs who are CPAs is now under 50%. Yeah, and it's dropping. Yeah, hard, dropping hard. I mean, it's, it's pretty substantial for sure. I got one for you here. Uh, this is actually a, a, a riff on just a tweet. So I'm a big fan of Anand Sanwal, who's the CEO of, of CB Insights, an incredible data platform. And he had this funny tweet where like podcasters always ask, like, what, what's your relationship with money? As if like there's like some like deep meaning behind it. Like, and it's always rich people that they're asking and like they got to like, you know, church it up like as as if like the money doesn't really mean anything it's about like the accomplishments and stuff i just always come back to like i trust a person more if they're just like money i love it like i want i want more of it like that that's what i'm i'm working here to do i don't do you have a take on that do you ever get like weirded out when people ask like what's your what's your curtis what's your relationship with money like if you're trying to say that you're not driven by money i'm just gonna immediately think you're lying you know, why are you continuing to be the CEO of this big company or the founder of this company if you truly don't care about these things? I completely agree with you. I think, well, Sam Parr, I'm trying, I don't have the stat in front of me, but they talked about, they have Hampton, their membership community. And he talked about how they ran a survey and they showed the net worth of everyone. And then they asked them, basically at what net worth do you think you would be happiest or, or however, whatever, some iteration of that question. And the chart was basically just one, you just move each of those net worth levels, one notch to the right. And that's what everyone's Everyone just wanted to be in the next bucket. Everyone basically just wanted to be in that next bucket. I think it's good to reflect on, you know, what what sacrifices I'm willing to make versus what are those that I'm not willing to make and saying I'm you know saying like for example I'm willing to be away from home three nights a three nights a, a month but not anymore and if I have to make that sacrifice for my family I'm not going to do it so it's more setting rules of what you're willing to do and not willing to do and then holding yourself to those rules and then I think like we're all competitive people. You're if you're in business or in this situation, you want to win. And so one of the best way, the easy, I mean, one of the scoreboard ways to win is to be after that money. And so to me, it's we got to set rules, like align, you know, make sure you're aligning with your rules that you're setting, but then there's no cap on on the rest of it. And I think anyone who says anything different than that, um, they're they're just hiding their true. Um, their true means. I have been around a few people who have made so much money though, that it becomes more about legacy. Like you see that their decision shift less about like, how much can I make on this and more like, how does this impact my legacy? And I think that is a distinct shift that you do see once you make it to a certain level. I don't know what that number is and it's probably different for everybody. Yeah. I think the, I think the legacy though, a lot of times is it's an effort to overcome the shortcomings that you've had because you've chased money. Oh, so that's hard. so true. Because you did travel three nights a week for yeah. 20 years. And so your pursuit of that legacy is an attempt to make up for where you've made the other sacrifices. True. It's, it's like you're finally reaching a point in your life where you made it on one scoreboard and now you're trying to not right the wrongs, but kind of change the narrative on maybe a different one. Yeah. And and that's not to say legacy is bad because I'm a big, I'm a big like legacy person, but I don't, you know, there's a lot of opinions out there about, you know, passing money down to kids and all that stuff. But 
but I guess just going back to what I said before, you've got to set the rule book of the things you're willing to sacrifice and not, and you've got to hold yourself to that um, in that pursuit. And you can chase legacy, but if you're not, if you didn't hold to those rules and now you're transitioning to chase, chase legacy, then it's, it's a coping mechanism for you not doing that. All right. Last one. And I put this one in specifically for you. So out of all the internet friends I've made, you are one of the master networkers out there and you have a way of making people feel comfortable talking to you and sharing insights, helping other people kind of prop themselves up. And so I wanted to ask, do you have any tactics for getting important people to answer cold emails or tweets or like, how, how do you do it, man? Because I feel like you're, you're very plugged in and you have a, you have a way of getting important people to pick up the phone. Well, one, I don't, I don't go for an ask immediately. Right. I just try and show them, show people that I know them basically reference something that is meaningful to them that they've mentioned or talked about somewhere. And in that it has to be something you're connecting with. Right. Um, and so there's been people that have tweeted about things that I agree with that like align with whatever my core values are. And I just say, Hey, this really hit me because of this. So it shows that you know them. And then the other thing is people want to write novels and no one reads your novel. <laughs> they just skim it. And so I then just like to keep it short. So those are kind of the two things that I just try and do is like, I try and make a connection early um, to just kind of show we're not just aligned. I'm not just out here trying to get to you because of success. I'm trying to get to you because I feel like we're aligned on different levels. Like, and, and a lot of times if it's outside of their niche of importance, like what they're good at, I think that that is more powerful than within that. And so for me, it's, it's just trying to draw a connection and then it's just keeping it short. You got to shoot a lot of shots. And I think that's where a lot, like people hone in on one person or one thing. And I think I just try and come up with like intentional connection. Um, and anytime I see it, just shoot it off real quick and half the time or more, you don't get responses, but I think a lot of people aren't shooting enough shots. A lot of people make fun of like Gary V because sometimes he'll go over the top in like his rants. But I remember he made this really good point that like there's some kid at home that's actually going to get some like crazy drop shipping business off the ground because he did sit on his bed and send 1000 Instagram in mails and three people actually answered him. And there is something to be said about just like killing them with volume. And I don't mean like spam the same person, but you do have to have those shots on goal. And I mean, it's even happened to me for this podcast. I mean, just cold emailing somebody on LinkedIn, like doing 20, 50 public CFOs and then a couple answer. And you also included in your note, hey, I'm also a proud customer and like finding a link there. Or I, I read this thing that you wrote 10 years ago and it really inspired me. And they're like, holy shit, you found that and you read that? Like, I think creating those connections can go a long way. I think a lot of people, they're reaching out when they need something. And there's definitely times where you've got to do that. But I try and reach out before I need something because even if they didn't respond to it the first time, when they see the second one and you're asking for something because you maybe are at a point of needing something, they'll be like, oh, you and not, not that you're trying to create some sort of like obligation to you, but in a way you're creating an obligation to you. Like, oh, I didn't respond to him last time and he gave me this thoughtful thing. And so it makes them more likely to then respond to the next one. Like there's a there's someone that if I said their name, you would know who they are. And I did not seek this person out in any way other than just when I had things that I was related to them, I just messaged them and just, I never got a response. I, then finally about the third time I did it, I got a response. And then since that point, I've gotten opportunities to go speak to their audience multiple times. And then they reached out to me because they want to do some sort of business connection with them. until they did that. I didn't even know in the DMs if they were the one responding or if it was like one of their people, you know? And so um, when, when I talked to one of their people, they said, well, how do you, why is this person reaching out to you? It's because I'm guaranteed it's because of like the couple times, the three to four times I DM'd them when I'd seen stuff that, that I aligned with, that I was doing more than just saying, hey, I loved your stuff. You know, I was being very specific. I was being very intentional about the way I approached it. 
So just to sum that up, like the timing, so don't go to somebody when you desperately need something. No one likes a desperate person asking for something. Second, be short. People don't have a long attention span. Don't write them a novel. Three, I don't know if we said this, but like also try to say what's in it for them. People are inherently selfish, even if they're not trying to be selfish. They do scan it and say, oh, you're asking for 30 minutes. Well, what do I get out of this besides me giving you my time? Like try to say that. And then do your research to find a connection on, on something that you have in common. Yeah, that was, yeah, that's where I said, show them, you know them, like show them it's more than just a deal, more than just a, a, you know, cause now like I get all sorts of, you know, spam emails, not spam emails, spam DMs and Twitter. And I can tell they just went to, they just like went to my profile, liked one tweet and then said, oh, this tweet. And it's like, but you don't even follow me. So I know you don't, you know, like. there's just there's there's a lack of common sense for a lot of people when they're when they're doing those this has been a fun jam session as always what what are you working on lately and where can people find you find me on twitter dm me on twitter that's probably the best place um you know i'm uh i'm in the middle of trying to kind of re you know i started on this fractional cfo journey about a year and a half ago but went full-time on it back uh in the late summer and so i'm just trying to have fun with that, trying to build that team and, um, holding on until my wife has a baby here in the next couple of weeks. So, um, so if I don't respond to you, that's probably why is I'm, uh, I have, I right now I have, I think 35 unread telegram messages because I've just quit reading all of my messages in there. It's so, me, Curtis, please answer me. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but that's check me out on Twitter and would love to chat back and forth. What and what's what's the name of the group? What name did you settle on? Oh, oh yeah. My company is Bison CFO. So And when do I get a hat with the cool logo? That's the real I question. so <laughs> I do have I do have two hats. My dad is still asking for a hat and he ain't got a hat. So you're behind my dad, but I'm up there. All right, man. <laughs> All right. Thanks and congrats on the baby and best of luck. Thank you. Thanks. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for letting me on. Roll the credits, producer Natalie. Run the Numbers is part of the Turpentine Podcast Network. It is produced by Natalie Torrin and edited by Justin Golden. Album artwork by Some AI Thing. Yelling an intro by Fat Joe. If you made it this far, please give us five stars. I really need this.